Hi everyone, this is Holly Herndon. And Matt Dryhurst. And you're listening to Interdependence. Interdependence is a series of conversations with people shaping 21st century culture. If you're hearing this, then you're listening to the free version. If you'd like to hear the full episode, please consider supporting this work by becoming a patron at patreon.com interdependence. Welcome to episode four of the Interdependence podcast. This week, we talk with Jesse Ingle, a musician and senior research scientist at Google Brain, where he's a key contributor to Magenta. Magenta is an open-source research project exploring the role of machine learning as a tool in the creative process. Developed by numerous researchers and engineers from the Google Brain Team, Google's self-directed machine intelligence group. We think machine learning will have a massive impact on music creation and community in the coming years, so it's really great to be able to talk with somebody working at the forefront of this research. Jesse and I have been playing email tag for months, but we were finally in touch again via a Twitter thread about OpenAI's recent jukebox project. So we'll discuss how that project raises some necessary ethical debates around the puppeteering of live artists' voices and styles, but we'll also discuss the research focus of Magenta and Jesse's most recent projects, and eventually get psychedelic about how making music technology precedes spoken language. Hey, Jesse, it's so nice to have you on Interdependence today. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about your role at Magenta and also a little bit about um, the background of what Magenta is itself. Sure, sure. Thanks for having me. Um, (laughs) So uh, my role in Magenta is I'm uh, the research lead. So I help to sort of direct uh, our different research directions. Um, And then also uh, I do a lot of uh, personal research in the realm of audio synthesis. So sort of taking notes or other types of representations and turning them into actual sound. Um, and uh, I joined Magenta around probably 2016. I think the project started maybe a, a little bit before that. Yeah, great. If you could just back up and tell us um, how you came to Magenta. Um, like, do you have an academic background or do you have a research background? Sure. Um yeah, so I actually have a kind of strange route that I've taken to ending up uh, where I am. Um, so my background is is actually in the harder sciences. Like uh, I have an undergrad in physics and I did uh, like research in astronomy. Like I studied the Martian atmosphere as an undergrad. And then um, wow. I went and I wanted to sort of learn about renewable energy and try to, you know, save the world and all that. So <laughs> I, uh, I went uh, and did a PhD in material science and I worked on nanotechnology. So I worked a lot on solar cells and quantum dots and these things. Uh, and it was kind of a weird lab. It was like a mixture of chemistry and electrical engineering and a lot of different things. Um, and then over the course of all that, um, I've always been a musician um, uh, since, since high school. And um, I actually taught myself how to code and a lot of machine learning stuff through music. Um, and it's kind of an interesting progression. I actually started with like Ableton live and then, mm-hmm. you know, there was all the max MSP stuff. Um, and you know, I, once they had max for live, I was like, oh yeah, I can like 
I can play around with the boxes inside of Ableton. And then I was like, oh, what happens if we open up these boxes inside of Max? You know, mm. and it's like, oh, you can do like code, C code and that type of stuff. And so that's a lot of was my introduction to a lot of these things. Um, and I went from that to uh, doing neuroscience for my, my postdoc um, between Stanford and Berkeley. Um, and I did some a lot of uh, collaborations there also with uh, Karma in my spare time uh, with Julia Smith doing signal processing types of things. Cool. Uh, that which is the, uh, what is it, Computer Center for Research in Music and Acoustics or something like that. Yes, center. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> something like that. Um, yeah. And uh, from there, I uh, sort of learned a lot about machine learning. Um, one of my housemates actually got a job um, helping to found uh, the Silicon Valley AI lab with Andrew Ng, which was like a Baidu AI lab uh, working mm -hmm. on speech recognition. And he said, oh, you should just come on by. And there was a lot of interesting uh, folks from Stanford there doing, um, doing research. And so I went for my postdoc to that, learned how to do machine learning. And then uh, a year and a half later or so, uh, I got this email or um, I found out that Doug Eck was starting this group called Magenta uh, over in Google that was focused on creativity and machine learning. Uh, and it just seemed like a great opportunity for me to fuse um, like all this uh, scientific and technical aspects of, of my interests with uh, the artistic side that has always been there. And that it's always this duality, but I finally got to make it my job to do both at the same time. That's a really wild trajectory. It's fascinating <laughs> to hear. But I mean, it also, you know, we I, I was at Karma for a while, you know, spent years at Stanford. And that's one yeah. of the things that I remember about that place also specifically is that I felt like there was a kind of openness there. Like if you were interested in something, but you weren't necessarily from that background, you know, people would be interested to show you how it worked. And then you could kind of jump into different fields or go into different directions. And I found that really attractive about that place. So it's cool that you had that experience. Yeah, it was really funny. I came to Julius, I just had this wild, it was this really weird idea. I haven't even published it yet, but I made, I made a synthesizer based on the, the physical emulation of the electronic vibrations in a crystalline solid. So like, um, the, like electrons, <laughs> like they move, they're all waves, like everything's waves. Right. So, uh, so they they move in a particular way inside of, inside of materials. And it's the way that they move changes like what makes something metal versus making it, you know, clay, you know, uh, uh, insulator or any of these types mm -hmm. of things. And the cool thing is that those, if you take those waves and turn them into sound, you know, you can actually hear the different properties of materials and stuff. So I just came to Julius with this weird idea and he was like, yeah, let's, you know, I was like, I don't know anything about signal processing, but I know, I know this stuff. He's like, oh yeah, it's totally the same. So we found a cool connection there. Yeah. And you also just like happen to like run into like the world kind of uh, authority. Julius right. is like, I know a thing or two about signal processing. <laughs> yeah. There cool. is a there is a nice thing where um, certain institutions like Stanford and Berkeley and things, there's a lot of opportunities if you search them out. And so like you read the book and then you're like, wait a second, the person who wrote the book is right here. I can just go ask yeah. him a question. So I yeah, feel very fortunate to, to have had that as part of my education. Yeah. I mean, basically what I wanted to know is, you know, it's almost like two separate questions. There's like, mm -hmm. what's Magenta's mission? And then sure. also kind of piggybacking on that is like, you know, I know that you guys release stuff kind of open source. And I'm kind of curious how that works in the con the greater context of a Google or an Alphabet. Because I think for people who are maybe less familiar with um yeah, the kind of scale of these organizations, they might not understand how to square that circle. Yeah, that absolutely. Um, 
Yeah, I, I like to think of it this way where, you know, Google's a giant organization. It's like 100,000 people or more. Uh, and then the research within that is one of the largest research institutions. You know, it's in the it's in like tens of thousands and then or 10,000. And then there's like 1,000 like deep learning researchers, which is the Google brain. And then within that, there's Magento, which is about five people. So uh, <laughs> we, we really are just a, a small group of researchers that um, – we since we're exploring creativity uh, in machine learning, it's really important, we think, to to have that be an inclusive process. So we try to make everything that we do open source. We try to have it all um, like the the code for the research, the code for any of the implementations. Um, we've also spent a lot of effort taking um, the algorithms we develop and putting them into more accessible uh, forms. So the Magenta Python base, we also have um, a JavaScript library called magenta.js um, that for sort of creative coders is a really great entry point to machine learning and music and that type of stuff that you can, lots of people um, can hack up their own sort of demos uh, with the, with those types of things in web pages. Um, and yeah, so it's that, that idea that hopefully... By closing the loop um, with artists and creative coders and those uh, that we can get feedback that actually can help us then further direct our research. You know, um, mm -hmm. we, we can't stick a researcher like a, an, an artist, like we can't take a gradient through them, you know, to actually directly, you know, uh, you know, um, inform our models. But what we can do is try to include them as much as possible. So even in this most recent um, year, we've started a new effort directly uh, collaborating with human computer interaction researchers um, mm -hmm. to to look at how does how do the machine learning models that you train and the ways you look at structuring those machine learning models how does that change when the goal is to improve the empowerment and the agency of the end user instead mm -hmm. of the typical goal of generative modeling being to imitate a data set so mm, that's fascinating um, yeah, so that's like sort of the sh the shift in perspective that we're really trying to. Uh, it's very difficult, you know. To you know, you gotta. It's very interdisciplinary. You know, it really takes um, trying to bridge that gap. But um, yeah, that's that's something that motivates us. So that's our approach. It's a pretty cool distinction to hear too, because obviously the the motivation for uh, for this conversation, or one of one of the motivations for this conversation was to talk about the OpenAI uh, Jukebox project and, and a mm. series of tweets that you made. And just to preface that discussion in the sense, you know, we just recently spoke with Francois Pochet and, and Benoit Carré have been working over at, at Spotify um, and have been working on basically systems to augment the human creativity process in, in the process of making music, right? Um, yeah. And in the work that we've been doing, similarly, th there's kind of like, it's a simple, it's a simplified argument, but there's almost, you know, uh, uh, the, given the history of using these kind of cognitive or automated systems in music creation, you can very roughly divide it into two streams, right? One being this longstanding effort to try and basically emulate something so as to create the ultimate composing, automated composing machine, right? Um, and the other being to simply, as you put it earlier, like see these tools as the latest in a suite of technological augmentations of human capacity, right? Um, so the distinction being that you're not trying to replace the human in that process, but you're trying to actually like give them more tools to express themselves. Um, mm -hmm. And it's funny, the, the distinction you just made with 
with the 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 data set itself feels like an even more like a really really interesting way to uh to also clarify that distinction right it's not about emulation but but about something else yeah and i th- i think it's kind of an interesting thing in the sense that there's kind of a continuum because um you know on the far end of the continuum right is the push play uh, and it just, you know, it just spits out music, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so on some sense, there's very little agency involved in there, right? You have very little opportunity to intervene or to, um, you know, to to express yourself through through that um, through that action or to feel agency over it. And on the other end of the spectrum is are tools that just sort of like give you all the raw, you know, bits and components. Um, and then, uh, you know, you have to use it. But in a certain sense, that also can be very limiting in terms of agency, because if you don't know how to use all those raw bits, like if you don't haven't spent the time learning how to play a saxophone, let's say, um, then it can be very difficult and be a barrier to expressing yourself with that instrument um, to 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 have all these technical barriers in between. Mm-hmm. So there's sort of this many levels of control that that come in. Um, and that's true for any instrument, like the difference between. Uh, I don't know, maybe like a clarinet or something that's like some kind of hard to get a single note out of and a, and a piano like these, these, these systems have all these different trade-offs built into them as well. A piano, you can sit down and just hit it and it makes sound. Um, But the, but also, I mean, yeah, but also similarly, the piano is kind of by its physical layout. It's kind of asking your fingers to do certain things over others. Right, Same with exactly. a guitar. It, it kind of like enables certain chords over others or, right. you know, maybe more obviously, like if you open up Ableton and it's like 120 BPM 4.4, mm-hmm. you know, and that, so there are there are, are already all of these kind of decisions made with whatever technology we're using, which is basically, right. I think, what you're saying, right? So yeah, where, and- where, 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 where on the spectrum is kind of the sweet spot? Between well, like so, <laughs> the pressing play and the full agency or whatever. Right. Well, I, I think that's something where I, I think context matters a lot. I was, what I was trying to get to was that um, there's actually a concept in machine learning uh, that, that we use the word bias to describe this, right? That mm-hmm. the bias are the, the predispositions of a model to doing a certain thing. And bias can come from different directions, right? Bias can come from the data set that you choose to train on that will constrain the model to do certain types of things. Bias can come from the architecture that you use within the model. Um, Like certain architectures will be able to express certain things easier than others. Um, And then uh, bias also comes in terms of, yeah, like the controls that the the model exposes to the, to the user Mm -hmm. in those ways. Um, So, so bias is a good thing, right? Bias is what enables, um, it's what enables you to actually do something with it, with a tool, you know, is that it, it does do some things better than others. So what machine learning does in some sense is it kind of opens up the box to allowing people to define the bias for themselves, because you can take a data set mm-hmm. and you can say, learn bias based on this data set, you know, take this, the real world, you know, uh, all this real world knowledge that's based in this data set and try to learn like the easiest way of expressing that. Um, so the, the trade-offs are that the intentionality that you put into collecting that data set and then the intentionality that you put into like, well, what controls does the model <clears throat> expose over that data set and those types of things, uh, that really matters a lot in terms of, um, the, the, the types of agency and empowerment that someone gets over using that type of tool. Um, so like our perspective within Magenta is that interpretability matters. 
Um, so that like, you know, these black box algorithms where you just sort of have like the output and the input and there's just like not very many controls that our, our bias is to say um, that actually if we can train a model. Oh, I, are you guys still there? Yeah. Oh, yep, sorry. Yeah. sorry at all. <laughs> okay. Our bias is to say that if you can train a model um, where all the intermediate layers are also interpretable so that a person can go in there and say, oh, I see what it's doing at each of these different layers, like um, rather than saying it's just make, making music, it's saying like, oh, maybe music is made up of like, you know, is well expressed by a bunch of discrete events, you know, a bunch of notes. Mm -hmm. uh, so we can look at those notes and then we can look at like, what are the timbres of those notes? And we can look at like, you know, how do they interact with each other and all these types of things. So you can then expose, depending on the, the user's skill level with all this stuff, you can then choose how much of that to actually expose to a user. So someone that's like a real novice might be really empowered with a high level interface that has very few controls, but then you give the opportunities for education, right? Where you can say, okay, well, here's the implications of all the actions that you did. Like, here's what it means about the notes and here's what it means about the instruments and all these types of things. Whereas when it's just a black box, um, you're removing those opportunities for for like interaction and education from from the user. So that's that's sort of one of the the motivation motivating factors. It also turns out that it's actually a really good thing for machine learning. That there's some limitations to how far deep learning seems to be able to go just with this black box approach. That it works really well when you train it on a specific data set, but if you want to generalize it to a bunch of other data sets, making a bunch of a you know, generalizable, interpretable assumptions within the model actually help in generalization. So there's a whole lot of, you know, deep machine learning research that's going on these days in terms of uh, causality and learning structure and all this type of stuff that's sort of actually going the very opposite direction from this like omnipresent gigantic black box model that you just feed all the world's data into mm -hmm. and it just magically gives you what you want on as the output. That's really fascinating, actually. I mean, one one phrase that I like to use uh, frequently is uh, <clears throat> I like to call it an, an aesthetic cul-de-sac where um, like mm. if we are only relying on kind of um, historical models, um, then we'll kind of uh, basically if, if our input is all kind of historical, then our output will be very similar to that input. And so it's really hard to break out of that kind of cyclical aesthetic kind of paradigm. Um, right. And I think the kind of music that we make, we try to create a sound that's um, that sounds like it's situated in our current situation. Um, mm -hmm. But what you're talking about with being able to kind of like peel back and uh, layer by layer um, really have more control. That sounds really interesting to me. Well, yeah, it's, it's like the difference between like, instant ramen and cuisine <laughs> but you know because i've seen certain examples and of course it makes it makes a lot of sense where like you know in a sense a lot of music making at least on the novice level and there's nothing wrong with this at all has in a way kind of become a little bit like completing a video game you know right there's actually a mm -hmm. friend of ours colin miller was talking about this years ago and, and i always want to credit him for that but but it's like yeah i mean fruity loops is very much like that and that, that's yeah still if you if you push if you if you uh touch a few, you know, you figure out the right combination and ultimately this is the result you're going to get, um, which of right. course as a learning tool is really, really useful. But for anything truly sophisticated, yeah, you want to be able to intervene at like as many stages of the process as possible, right? Right. And there's also that challenge of the um, like 
when it's like a video game, like I, I, I really admire the like rock band and all that type of stuff, but that just, mm-hmm. it's, there's this weird notion in it imparts on people that there's like a correct way to play music. Yes. And for that, sure. like, you can like win at playing music, right. which is just, <laughs> just kind of a very weird way of relating to something that has been just is an integral part of being a human being, you know? Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And also, I mean, it's funny, this is speaking more specifically about like, kind of the, the demo art component of also demonstrating these machine learning uh, projects, right? Where mm. like, in many cases, I feel like I've seen projects released in the last five years or so where let's just say that the end result, um, how to put it, the <laughs> end result is kind of like a really, really impressive example of a very, very narrow application. Um, mm-hmm. And in some cases it can kind of be deceiving right? When you see a really, really well executed example right. of a very, very narrow thing, sure. um, that kind of connotes this kind of universal sophistication of the system where in actuality, what people don't understand is that system is just really, really good at remaking back corrals or whatever right, it might be, right, right? Right, right? And so you get this kind of, it's not to say that people are intentionally deceptive, but I think that particularly with with like wider discourse around this stuff, you can see a, a you know a deep learning system produce a really really cool back corral a very convincing back corral sure. and then you jump you take the leap from that to being like wow this stuff can do anything and you're like well no that like, <laughs> that was trying to do a really good back corral yeah i just want to draw the connection to that this is actually one of the deep fundamental questions for machine learning research that oftentimes a research paper will make some claim and they, you have to make claims in your paper based on like, well, like I made a model and I got these results and it's always this problem that the scope of the problem is never broadly enough defined. Mm-hmm. And so there's always this question of generalization, right? Like it did well in what you showed, but how well yep. does it do outside, you know, your domain that you're, that you're looking at. And I think <laughs> that really applies in the creative arts because the, the situation is like, that you want to generalize to a situation that you don't even know, right? Like mm-hmm. it's easier for certain types of machine learning systems to, to know what the intention is of the user. Like you're trying to go from point A to point B in a map. And the goal of my algorithm is to show you the fastest way to get there. But for creative stuff, I really, you know, our goal, one of the, like the things that would delight me the most is when people use our tools and break them, you know, when they use them, however they want to use them, you know, and find all the AI weirdness that's inside and, and follow their, their uh, desires with it. But you, hmm. you can't know that going in, you can't build one tool for every possible, uh, you know, intention. So Absolutely. it's kind of this interesting thing. Yeah. And it's funny too, cause that actually in the, the work that we were doing around proto, that was, it, it was a really difficult thing to describe to people, like kind of like the artifice around the artificial intelligence, right? Mm-hmm. Where like most people, particularly you'll see like large companies do big demos, like, you know, they'll have like an orchestra play, a composition sure, sure. created by an artificial intelligence. And of course, there's the layers of artifice on there are they have a composer, they have 50 people, you know, scripts, like uh, uh, what's the word, making notes on that score to improve right. it. And then they have all these human beings performing it with all this this beautiful kind of elegant uh, interpretation. interpretation. And then by the end of it, you're like, oh my God, these systems are incredible. <laughs> Whereas on our side of things where we're working with like oftentimes like rinky dink kind of style transfer voice models, <laughs> right. the, 
the fidelity is shit. Like it's really low <laughs> fidelity. But I, I, it, you, know, you guys listen to the original Ensynth uh, stuff. Yeah, it has a very like <laughs> Mellotron vibe to it, which is ironically, people have really like the artists we've worked with and stuff. They at first they hate it, and then after a little while, they're like. Actually, it's just it kind of has this weird thing that it does where it like plays yeah. these weird upper harmonics and this weird stuff. And it's kind of just that 2016 end synth sound, you know, we will never we'll never go there again. Well, <laughs> that's, that's exactly what we got it. really interested in is like actually aestheticizing the tech where it is right now yep. mm-hmm. and kind of just trying to, um, yeah, just kind of deal with it instead of trying to um, create a kind of glossy, perfected version of it, you know? Right, right. Yeah. And it does have its own aesthetic, right? It's like very... As you say, like in the upper harmonics, it's very kind of raspy. You call it scratchy. <laughs> I have really sensitive higher frequency yeah. ears. It's something sure. that Matt and I always um, fight about sure. in the mixing studio. <laughs> so raspy sounds. I'm always well, like, to ah. me, it, it sounds like a Xerox machine. <laughs> yeah, a lot of it goes to the biases of these models, right? Like, so these are autoregressive models, the ones that you were using in Ensynth. So what it's literally mm-hmm. doing is predicting the waveform one sample at a yep, time. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so if it makes any mistakes in that, what it comes out as is higher frequency components of the original signal. So you get a lot of mm-hmm. these higher mm-hmm. frequency stuff. <laughs> but it Sorry, sounds beautiful, I'm, but again, no, it, it's, that's also, no, no, that's it, great. It, and it's, it, but, but it is really funny to have to explain to people that actually like somehow the most optimistic or like in our minds, like the, the most kind of future sounding stuff was actually the most low fidelity sounding um, mm-hmm. output. Whereas, you know, you had all these really impressive high fidelity sounding things, but actually all they were doing was interpreting a MIDI score, a very limited MIDI score. You know? hmm. Well, I think there's also another point, which is that when I'm talking about intention, like I can get this from a lot of machine learning work, like including your guys's work in terms of um, like a lot of the, the purpose of music f- that I get out of it. There's one thing about like flow states in the moment and stuff because I'm an improviser. But another thing is about really connecting to music as like a verb instead of a noun, you know, it's not a thing that you download that is like an artifact that exists, but it's a, it's a process that someone went through in making something and you connect to the process. You know, when you're, when you're watching someone play guitar, you have those mirror neurons going on in your head where you're like, you're listening, um, you, you're sort of imagining yourself playing the guitar while you while you watch that, and so there's a similar thing can, that can go on in machine learning where you can you can hear the data set that someone trained on, you can hear their choices that they mm-hmm. they chose to use in terms of how do they presented the samples, which samples did they choose, you know how did they choose to go through that process, and and how are they presenting it, um, and so I think. There's this thing about intention and it really matters a lot because in those higher production, you know, sort of PR blitzes, there's sort of, there's a lot of effort that goes into obscuring. It's like almost, they're almost trying to remove the artist's intention when you can't, you know, the art, you know, you trained it on a certain type of data, then you're like, you're, you're editing the the score. I mean, there's all, you know, it's all it's all humanity through the whole thing. You know, even the data is just, even the outputs of the model are just a distilled form of what it was trained on. So mm-hmm. this, this, this identity of trying to like anthropomorphize algorithms <laughs> and stuff is like, I, I know, I mean, sorry, that's like a line that I just go on, but like, but in general, mm-hmm. that I, that idea of trying to remove the humanness that actually exists throughout the entire, the entirety of the um, algorithm 
it, it, it falls a little bit flat because people know that you can hear it all there. And it's like weird that you're hiding it. Uh, one of the terms that I really like for, I think what you're describing here is called musicking, which mm. is like, you know, experiencing music, like, you know, live music, um, making music with other people. It's like at this, yeah. this verb that you're talking about. And it's something that actually I really missed um, during the making of Platform, which was the album before Proto. Um, mm. Even though I was collaborating with a lot of people, that was often happening online. And so when we moved to Berlin, it was a goal of mine to put together um, an ensemble. And we really wanted to music with people in space and right. improvise and try out material. And that was a huge part of the making of Proto. And a lot of people think that that's really weird. They're like, Oh, you made this, you know, machine learning album, but it involves making music with people in space. How do you square that circle? And for me, that makes total sense, actually. Well, yeah, it's also like, I mean, a lot, at least in your thesis, you're thinking a lot about like, I mean, you, you mentioned earlier, I can't remember if this is before we officially started recording or not, but this idea that, you know, these music, musical tools and these modes of communication have existed longer than most tools, right? Um, right. And singing in and of itself as a coordination mechanism has existed probably before we were even conscious of it. Like, um, and so it just feels like very strange again to go back to this kind of maybe false dilemma or false binary between, you know, automated composing systems versus musicking systems or flow state systems. Um, it seems really peculiar to use what is like the next stage in human coordination capacity to isolate ourselves. You know? <laughs> I mean, or to like write ourselves out of the process. I mean, it just, it's really right. peculiar. It's a peculiar fetish, you know? Um, the, um, one of the things I have, a um, one of my friends is this fantastic musician. He lives in New York named Gillian Harwin. And she uh, hipped me to this one thing that the oldest bone flutes are actually the oldest bone flutes we have are, are older than any like of our oldest pottery that we know about. Wow. Um, oh, wow. So like she loves the saying that the, the flute is older than soup, you know, that like <laughs> we have been using technology to augment the way that we make sound longer than we have like known how to hold water in a container, <laughs> you know? Well, yeah. And like, similarly, you know, song predates language and language actually shaped our heads. You know what yeah. I mean? Like we had like physically well, modulated we our pet. We went deep. I mean, this is definitely uh, now we're in the stoner, the stoner, the stoner. <laughs> yeah, hours, this is like, the stoner section. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, no, there was a, there was a there was a period of time like we were doing a lot of like commission kind of artworks around the creation of the record, and like we made this one piece called uh, Chain Opera, but the which is kind of a pun on the term Chan Operateur, which is a, a, a an old. It's kind of like a, a what would the term be? What's the study? It's like an anthropological term mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. speaking specifically about entrainment. And I don't know how much you know about entrainment as like a, a concept. Um, I mean, you can go ahead and talk a bit about it. I think that would be great. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> um, well, just this, this basic idea, right, that, that humans are some of the only, uh, some of the only um, beings that are able to kind of organize themselves and choreograph themselves, uh, choreograph themselves um, to a pulse. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so there, there's speculation that the earliest tools that we created were done. I think actually chimpanzees and dolphins are also able to, but great apes aren't. Interesting. Like fun fact. Yeah. Fun facts. <laughs> that is a fun fact. <laughs> this is, this is what the <laughs> listeners of your podcast tune in for. This is, this exactly, is the exactly. This is the, the, the Rogan hour. Um, but the, uh, yeah, but the, but, but anyway, there's some speculation that basically like before we were able, before we developed the capacity to be able to pass on instructions to one another, um, 
uh, uh, verbally, we developed the capacity to to learn choreographed instructions from one another. And so there's some speculation that some of the earliest tools like flint tools or uh, very primitive tools um, were developed through learning choreographies, through mm-hmm. basically watching other people doing something. And so the, the, the assumption there is that we didn't actually know what we were doing, but we were we had a, an impulse or an urge to dance with other people and those dances produced technology which like <laughs> is pretty nut i mean like and of course then you start getting really into like the the stoner hours of being like well you know the technology precedes our consciousness oh my god like you know that, that kind well, of so late, we're getting late night thinking abstract here but I, I i do want to point that we don't um like i actually think about this very pragmatically like when i put the <laughs> the, the bone flute up on the slide it's like bone flute and it shows to piano and it shows to like electric guitar and then it shows to computer and then it shows to like machine learning and it has this question mark on it and it's just trying to show that like there it really is something that has always co-evolved and it's something that every time a new technology emerges the question isn't are we going to make music with it of course we're going to make music with it we make music with everything the question yep. is just how do we relate to that as a society, you know, like, yep. and we have each generation has to grapple with like when electricity came in and like, you know, the electric guitar really like came onto the scene, a whole new generation like got to embrace or, or rebel against or, you know, they had to really embrace that new technology or the 808 and all these different types of things. So I just think machine learning is, you know, our generation's, you know, a new technology that that's like has a lot of implications for us to try to figure out. And so part of what we do is like, we think that there should be a research group that's actively focused at trying to help figure that out rather than just having the research happen passively. And then artists have to figure out on their own. Mm -hmm. Amen. (laughs) Yeah. Well, this is probably a great segue actually to, to one of the other prompts for this is the, the, the open AI project, right? The, the, right, right. We touched on this earlier, but we didn't actually describe what the, uh, what the jukebox project is. Do you want to explain that? Or do you think Jesse should explain that? I I would welcome Jesse. Oh yeah. (laughs) Jesse, will you explain what the open AI jukebox project is? Uh, sure. Yeah. So um, they, the OpenAI Jukebox project is a machine learning model uh, that um, they developed that sort of um, evolution of a, a bunch of different uh, models um, that have been developed over time. And they did some adjustments to it, but they really, uh, they applied it at scale um, to just freeform uh, audio. So they downloaded from the internet like 1.2 million songs, and then they uh, trained uh, this algorithm that sort of looks at that audio, but looks at it in a sort of multi-scale level. So there's part of the model that's looking at the fine scale structure, part of the model looking at the medium scale, large scale. Um, and then through that process, they're able to model very, very long scale sequences. Um, and so uh, when they do that, they can then uh, generate from from the model. Um, and so they train it to just generate by itself and they train it to generate based on different types of control signals. Um, and so that's like labels that they had while training. And so one of the labels they had was uh, the, the artist who actually played the songs. So when the model is trained on that, it pays, it devotes part of its capacity to like splicing up the data set and paying extra attention to certain aspects of the data set. Like mm-hmm. this, you know, this is the, this individual artist. Um, and then it shares some resources, resources among all the artists, artists. Um, and yeah, and then they also can condition on lyrics. So uh, the reason why it's of note is that 
this is sort of like the a very black box model to modeling audio, but it was uh, more successful than a lot of approaches in the past because it applied the most recent models. It applied them at a scale. I think there was an enormous amount of compute that goes into training it. And then uh, it applied it on the biggest thing is that for music, when you do machine learning on music, it's all about data and there's a lot of restrictions on the different types of data that you're allowed to train on, different types of music you're allowed to train on, and then also on the um, the form that you represent that music. So um, sometimes you might represent music in terms of sheet music and like the notes that are present in the music, or you might represent the music just as like the raw audio of the music itself. Um, and so they trained on this data set that they um, created that was you know uh, definitely the largest one so far. So, um, yeah, so that's, I think, and, um, the thing is that when they condition, then you condition on a specific artist like Ella Fitzgerald or something, it would then generate, um, the vocal characteristics that were, it could focus on such a small amount of the data that like just is Ella Fitzgerald that Mm -hmm. it could generate something that is very similar to Ella Fitzgerald's voice, singing lyrics, whatever lyrics you decide to type into the system. Yeah, to various degrees of success. <laughs> right. And several of the examples were also living artists like Katy Perry, I think, was mm-hmm. one. And uh, I can't remember who else. Um, before even like even we begin to be critical about it, I mean, as like an engineering feat, it was really impressive. I mean, that's one like the, the first immediate response listening to, you know, the uh, the Rick Astley or whatever. Is, oh, yeah. You know, before any critical faculties kicked in, I was like, holy shit, this is really impressive. Right. Like they as you said, it, it takes a lot of compute. I think I read that it was like, uh, it took nine hours um, to produce one minute of audio with the system that they were using. It really felt like kind of wow. like the dream team approach in a way of like throwing the kitchen sink at this challenge, right? Like, <laughs> Well, it's, it's, it's very common to some of the large, uh, it definitely um, Google's been at the forefront of this as well. Like all the models they were using were actually developed at Google, which is like oh, wow. this transformer model, the VQVA2 model, all these types of things. Um, OpenAI has done a really good job of taking those models and then applying them just to lots and lots of data at really large scale uh, that would require, you know, millions of dollars to train. Um, so like GPT-2 was another famous language model that was like this tr- transformer model developed at Google, but they applied it to more text than the original authors had. And what happens when you have these really high capacity models and you apply them to lots and lots of data is then their performance really, uh, is, assuming the biases of the model are correct, the performance can really skyrocket. Yeah, I think my issue with the with the project is that OpenAI is kind of positioned as an organization set up to research not just the technology, but also the kind of implications of the technology. Um, and at the same time, it seemed like there was kind of zero pause when it came to sampling an individual's artistic identity. Um, that, that didn't seem to really come into consideration around this project. Um, so it was actually really relieving to see your take on this on Twitter. Um Yeah, I mean, we're obviously pursuing this stuff as kind of independent researchers on a minimal budget, so it can sometimes feel a little futile to see organizations of that scale and power overlook something that feels so fundamental. Um, So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about uh, your response on Twitter and also just to um, one last thing. um, I really appreciated that in that thread you mentioned that you come to this topic um, wearing kind of three hats. So you're a musician, you're a music AI researcher, and you're an AI researcher and how those three different kind of categories work together. Yeah. And I, just to 
be clear, like, um, I, you know, this isn't an open AI bashing. Like I also know the no, authors sure, sure. of, the, of that work. Um, and I really, uh, you know, I really respect them. We, uh, helped, uh, coordinate, um, we helped organize this creativity workshop at NeurIPS last year together. Um, and I talked with them personally and I know that they did do a lot of that consideration. It just wasn't mm-hmm. presented publicly as part of the release of the model. Uh, and they had their own reasons for, for why they decided not to do that. But the, um, for me, in terms of like those three hats, um, you know, like as a machine learning uh, researcher, um, first off, like we touched on this earlier in terms of these, these model things, but uh, this sort of goes to what we were talking about earlier about interpretability, that we're, we're all very impressed by the amount of energy and compute that has to be used to to do this type of work. But a lot of, um, it, there, there's sort of this cycle where things can go, where you go to like the you you demonstrate the possible solution by throwing a whole lot of compute at this at the thing and then you sort of figure out wait a second that was all really unnecessary uh, actually there's a much more like efficient solution that we can do um and so like a lot of my own personal research has been focused in that area because when you make things more efficient they're also much more accessible to mm-hmm. you know different types of uh artists and stuff to actually run on their own computers and all these types of things um, but also that this this concept very fundamentally about like how well does it generalize? You know, if you don't have 1.2 million songs to, to train on, you know, uh, can you can you get this model that will um, that will actually perform well in different in different situations? And so, um, giant black box models like this. Um, um, I, I mean, I know some folks. I, I collaborate a lot with uh, uh, Sander Dealman over in um, DeepMind, and he also has been taking a sort of a very similar approach. So I, I totally value them uh, in their own right. But uh, but that is that is one of the machine learning sort of that's my machine learning perspective on it. That you can sort of fall into this uncanny valley, similar to image models, where they have mm-hmm. an ability to do really good performance on a lot of classification tasks. But that we're, we keep on finding that there's this gap to true scene understanding, um, like to be able to truly generalize to, to just, oh, I know what all the objects are in the scene. And I have a causal world model about how these things, you know, if I push this block over here, how is this image going to change and all that type of stuff. Um, so that's the machine learning perspective um, the, and also kind of the machine learning uh, uh, music perspective in terms of the desire for a more efficient interpretable uh, models that can be more accessible to artists. And, and also in terms of the intentionality of uh, bringing, being very aware of, of, of it's like a, it's a continuum, but being very aware about who, um, you know, what, what data are you training on and uh, what, what are the outputs that are possible from this types of model, you know, and, and just basically if you're, if you're training a model that's able to, so closely reproduce certain aspects of specific artists, then it's just fundamentally different of than training a model that, you know, that isn't able to do those types of things. Um, so it is this continuum. Um, like the simplest model, like a machine learning model is just a, what we call like a nearest neighbors model uh, where like based on some input, it just plays back an entire pre-recorded song and that's like a music recommendation system right and so obviously that that type of model has very different implications than than other things so i i you know it's a big it's a big fuzzy area in terms of in terms of all that stuff but just sort of on a personal ethical level i guess that was where i resonated with that and then um 
from a musician's perspective, what I was saying is sort of tied into earlier what we were talking about, about musicking and music as a verb and those types of things that, um, and also what you were mentioning about the, um, where you're talking about like the demo art, you know, in terms of mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. there is, even though this is demonstrating a technology, the output of the model is kind of its own little artwork in its own sense. Um, mm-hmm. And so the, the particular demo art of that paper left me feeling a bit cold because um, the, the way it was done, the sort of the, all those factors added together such that the intentionality of, you know, the, the, about the artists that you're, you know, if you're replicating this artist without, you know, so many aspects of their voice without their consent, while also, um, you know, by, by being able to condition specifically on that artist, it somehow felt very different than let's say like a cover band or sampling that artist to make your own song or that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, For sure. Yeah. yeah. It's, it, it's interesting that that was actually a conversation that was happening behind the scenes. I really would, would have loved for that to have been part of the kind of release of that project. Cause I would be just really curious what their kind of internal conversations are around that. I'm sure they're really well, thoughtful the and interesting. That's the thing. And, and honestly, like, uh, just to, just to jo- join that, like our intention is of course also not to kind of bash anyone. I think that if anything, the intention is to, that, that there's such a richness to, to these debates that we feel is often omitted in larger discourse, particularly like the press discourse around machine learning and music, that it's actually really nice, I think, to to pull and to pull out these conversations, to scrutinize them, to figure out what the details and the intentionality is, um, pretty much as a means to try and get more people involved in the conversation, actually, right? Um, because it, it we often find that like these are the kind of uh, these are the kind of the emotional issues that like get people really engaged with the topic um, in the first place. Yeah. And maybe just to flesh it out a little bit more, I just also wanted to like, you know, since, since the other side wasn't presented, there is a, a big argument to be made for giant black box models being trained by big corporate labs that can pay mm-hmm. the money to train those models. Mm-hmm. And then others can come and fine tune those models to more specific artistic intentions. And so I'm sure there will be a lot of great, applications of people taking jukebox and fine tuning it to do really meaningful and thoughtful and thoughtful things with it. Just like uh, GPT-2, you know, a lot of great stuff has come out of fine tuning GPT-2 like uh, the AI dungeon project and these other types of things. Um, it's just, uh, yeah, there's just uh, a lot of factors you have to think about when you, when you do this type of research and I, I bringing it back to Magenta, I, I do think feel really good that this is something that we do think, you know, think a lot about and we try to be as open as possible with it as well in terms of, you know, putting everything we out that we do out there in this blog and in the code and really trying to make our process open and trying to include others in the process of helping to guide us in our process as well. Yeah, I don't take a necessarily like a judgmental position on this because I think there's also something quite interesting where you have maybe, you know, you're coming forward and saying you're wearing multiple hats right? Mm-hmm. Um, we've definitely encountered people in the past who are very, very well-intentioned, uh, well-meaning people for whom maybe they would see this challenge as more of an engineering task than having greater um, kind of maybe cultural implications, right? Um, and one thing I can see is that like, for example, um, training on existing canon, particularly existing canon that's so familiar, like that Rick Astley song or Ella Fitzgerald or something like that, Mm-hmm. in a sense, does also 
allow for you to create a more vivid end goal, right? Like somehow it actually, like what you were describing before with some of these magenta kind of augmented creativity proposals, it's really, really difficult to declare success, right? Mm. Because it's like, I mean, you can set your own terms for what success might look like, but it feels like definitely the legacy of like automated composition systems, for example, the Bach Corral example that was raised earlier, or, uh, you know, continuing Rick Astley's never going to give you up, <laughs> does does do a successful job from a purely engineering perspective of setting a really, really clear goal, if that makes sense. Um, and so I, I definitely sympathize with it, you know, um, and it, it also feels, you know, we end up also feeling kind of like, I don't know what's the word like the school um, marm. Like, yeah, yeah totally. don't do this. And yeah, that, that's actually not the point that we're attracted. Exactly, and I mean, and I mean it's from, just we ha- our our concerns are very different. Like, exactly. When we go into research, we have very different kind of outcome. You know, we're less kind of goal oriented in that way, or it's a different kind of goal in a way. And so, of course, that's what we're going to focus on. And you know, coming coming at it as an artist, I'm obviously going to be thinking about like you know the the kind of like personhood being sampled as being a big issue. One of the interesting things about machine learning as a technology is that... If you'd like to hear the rest of this episode, you can find it on patreon.com slash interdependence. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 